one day they will realize who they are. I've watched with fascination as Prince William and Kate Middleton of the royal family of the United Kingdom have had their first two children, Prince George and Princess Charlotte. And right now, those children are just children. One's a baby, one's a little bit older, and they're just growing up. I read an article that, that uh, William and Kate are trying to keep things normal for these little ones. But one day, they will realize who they are. One day, it will be explained to them that they are a part of a royal family. And when they understand at that moment who they are, they will begin to grasp the privileges of being a part of that family. And they'll begin to understand the responsibilities of being a part of that family. Well, this morning, I want us to see in the Scripture who we are as followers of Christ. And I believe that if we understand who we are, we will better understand our privileges and better grasp our responsibilities as followers of Christ. So keeping that in mind, I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We're going to read verse 1 together. We're going to focus specifically on verses 1 through 19 and a little bit further. You say, wait a minute, Wade, you preached on Acts 1, 1 through 19 last week. And I did, and we... We talked about the conversion of Saul and, and uh, dug into that narrative with great uh, detail. Uh, but there are some things in here I didn't have time to get to last week that are just too good to just leave behind. So before we move on in Acts chapter 9, I want to just kind of lift some things from this text that are, that are powerful. So Acts chapter 9, verse 1. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Truth with no mixture of error. The Bible is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Amen? Grateful for the Word of God. Acts chapter 9, verse 1, the Bible says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against, now watch this phrase, the disciples, everyone say disciples, the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found Any belonging, now look at this phrase, to the way, to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we we are grateful for your presence. Lord, we're grateful that you draw near and inhabit the praises of your people Lord, we're grateful that you care about us as much as you do. And Lord, I pray that as your word goes forth, that you will take your word by your spirit and Lord, grip our hearts with it. Open the eyes of our hearts so we might see the truths of scripture and give us the wherewithal to to adjust our lives, to live in accordance with what we learn. God, I pray that you would transform us, that you would mold us and make us in these moments into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. So just have your way in our midst. May Jesus Christ be exalted. Establish my footsteps in your word. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. 
Again, we've been walking through the book of Acts line by line, verse by verse, and we saw last week a key passage of Scripture when Saul is converted. He went from being an enemy of Christ, an enemy of the cross, to an ambassador for Christ. He's radically changed and sent, commissioned by God, to be a missionary to the Gentiles. And we studied that passage at length. And this is a key part of redemptive history as God is expanding the, the reach of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and now to the uttermost parts of the earth. And, and, and Paul will be a key component of, of the Lord getting the gospel to the nations. Well, again, as we study this passage, the, the, the major point of the passage is Saul is radically converted on the road to Damascus. That's the main point. But again, there's some things here that I want us just to look at and familiarize ourselves with before we move on to the next passage of Acts chapter 9. And specifically what I want to turn your attention to is there are five titles for Christians in this passage. Five titles for Christians. As a matter of fact, the way that we most often designate followers of Christ is by the word Christians. But we don't see the word Christians used until Acts chapter 11. So here's a good question. How were Christians, followers of Christ, how were they known, how how were they referred to before Antioch, before they were actually called Christians? Well, there are five titles in this text that helps us understand uh, what Christians were called or what they referred to themselves as. And again, if we understand these titles, which still apply to us today, we'll understand who we are, and what we are called to do. So the first title, the first name that I want to show you that, that is applied to Christians in Acts chapter 9 is, the, is the, the, the title Disciples. Disciples. I want to show you how many times this word is used throughout Acts chapter 9. We read it in verse 1. It says, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, fast forward down to verse 19. It says, taking food, he, Saul, was strengthened. He had fasted for three days before Ananias came to him. We talked about that last week. And then it says, for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. These followers of Christ called disciples at Damascus. And let's just go a little bit further. Look in verse 25 with me. It says in verse 25, His disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, that's a fascinating story we'll get to next week. But again, it calls the followers of Christ here disciples. And look at verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, the Christians in that city of Jerusalem. And let's just go a little bit further. Look in verse 36. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. And then in verse 38, it says, Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So all throughout this chapter, disciples, 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 disciples. What does the term disciple mean? Well, well, literally, the term disciple means learner or follower. That's what it means. Learner or follower. So when these followers of Christ are called disciples, what they're saying, these are learners of Christ. These are followers of Christ. That's what the word means. And this word is critical because it reminds us of the lifelong commitment we are making when we choose to follow Christ. You see, 
when, when someone is saved, it's not just they get a get-out-of-hell card. It's not just that they're saved from hell and going to heaven, and that's the end of what it means to be a Christian. Someone that is born again is starting a lifelong journey of following Christ. That, that's what it means to be a Christian. I talked about it last week. It's not just accepting Jesus as Savior. It's surrendering to Jesus as Lord. It's, it's, it's deciding that you want to follow him every day of your life. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Because not only am I saved from hell, I am a disciple. I am a learner, a, a follower of Jesus. So this word disciple is a word we ought to use more in modern day church because it reminds us of that lifelong commitment we're making when we choose to follow Christ. And hey, here's just a quick word. We saw some, some uh, young ladies baptized this morning and, and we, we had some professions of faith this past week in vacation Bible school. And, and just through the years, seeing parents... Uh, Rejoice when their children are saved is a wonderful thing. It's an awesome thing to see that. But I want you to hear me, parents, when it comes to your children being saved. Them meeting Jesus is just the beginning. Yes, they're saved from hell. Yes, they're going to heaven. Yes, your family is now a forever family. That's wonderful. But what matters next is that they follow Jesus every day. That you teach them how to walk. Listen, when they get saved, your job is not done. Your job is just beginning. Because they're not just a convert. Listen, they are a disciple, right? And now they need to spend a lifetime learning from Jesus. And so... This phrase reminds us of that lifelong commitment. But this, this, this word, disciples, also reminds us of our commission. Over in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gives his disciples what we call the Great Commission. And he tells them in verse 18, All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. In verse 19 he says, Go and make disciples of all the peoples baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So the, the, the verb that drives that commission is make disciples. That's our job as Christians, to introduce others to King Jesus by sharing the gospel with them so they can be saved, have their sins forgiven, and begin this lifelong journey of following Christ. You see, we are called as the church not just to make converts. We're called to make disciples. Remember last week I told you everyone needs an Ananias? When you're saved, you need someone to come along beside you and encourage you and mentor you and teach you what it means to follow Christ. When we see people saved here through the ministries of Longview Point, our job again is just beginning. Because we're not called to make converts. Jesus said, go and make what? Disciples. So this word, disciples, learner, reminds us of our commission. That's what we are called to do. I remember when Claire was in pharmacy school that in some clinical settings, she had to shadow other pharmacists. 
And that's a beautiful picture of, of what it means to make disciples. She, she shadowed, everywhere a, a, a pharmacist went, she would follow them. She would be their shadow and, and learn from them. And, and they would share some things uh, with her that she needed to learn about being a pharmacist. And, and she would just walk with that pharmacist all throughout the hospital or the clinic or wherever they were. Shadowing. That's what discipleship is. See, our job is to be learners of Jesus to shadow Jesus, if it will. Every day we should be learning from Jesus as we get into his word and walk with him and talk with him. We are called to shadow Jesus. Amen? And then when we see someone saved, a brand new believer in Christ, we can let them shadow us. And when they shadow us, we are teaching them by our life and by our words what it means to walk with Jesus. Disciple. So this word is used a lot in the book of Acts, referring to God's people, and it is a powerful word. That's the first title I want you to see. The second title I want you to see in Acts chapter 9 is the phrase. The phrase is, those belonging to the way. Those belonging to the way. Look what it says back in Acts chapter 9, verse 2. Saul goes to the high priest, he asks him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any, here it is, any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So throughout the book of Acts, a little later on in the book of Acts, we see this term used often for followers of Christ, followers of the way, or those belonging to the way. The word way in the Greek language is the word hodos, and it, it simply means road or highway. And so when it speaks of Christians being those who are followers of the way, it means they're on a certain road. That's what that are on a certain path. That's what the word means. This term reminds us that there is one way to God, and through Christ we have chosen that path. Because it's not followers of a way. There's a definite article there. It's followers of the way. Do you see that? Followers of the way. And so folks that know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior are on a very specific path. And it's not just a path. It is the path. It is the way. Because it is the only way that a person can be saved. The only way that a person can have a relationship with God. And so this word, this phrase, followers of the way, reminds us there's only one way to be saved. And as Christians, if we've chosen Jesus, we have chosen that path. We've chosen the one path, the one road that leads to the Father, the one road that leads to eternal life, the one road that leads to heaven, the one road that leads to forgiveness. There's only one way to be saved. And that's what's implied in that phrase, followers of the way. Now you say, Wade, does the Bible teach the exclusivity of Christ? Because if we listen to our culture today, we hear all sorts of, of pluralism, that, that there are many paths to God. Doesn't matter which path you choose, just choose one and be sincere. And whatever world religion or whatever you choose, it'll all get you to the same place eventually. That's called pluralism. And we hear it all the time. We hear it when they say, you know, followers of Christ and those of, of Islam and those of, 
Hinduism and those of Buddhism and, and Jews, you know, we all have the same God. That's, you hear that all the time in our culture. And that could not be more false because of what the Bible teaches. The Bible clearly teaches the exclusivity of Christ. First of all, through explicit statements. I mean, the Bible just comes right out and says it. For example, over in John chapter 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, listen, Jesus said this, no one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other way to know God. There's no other way to have a relationship with God other than through Jesus Christ. Explicit statements. And, and then since you're in Acts, turn over to Acts chapter 4. We've looked at this already, but let me just refresh your memory. Acts chapter 4. Let's look in verse 10. Acts chapter 4 verse 10. This is Peter before the Sanhedrin. He's being questioned because they healed a man of the name of Jesus. And it says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And here it is, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's pretty clear, right? You can't be saved by attaching yourself to any other name. It's only by embracing Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior that you can be saved. He's not a way, he is the way. So the Bible teaches the exclusivity of Christ through explicit statements. Over in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 5, it says that there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Only one way to be brought into a relationship with God, Jesus Christ. And so the Bible teaches it clearly and explicitly. But also, the Bible teaches the exclusivity of Christ by showing us the implications of our need. And I, I want to walk you through this because this is so important. When you see the case that the Bible makes about our condition and what is required for us to be saved, you see that there can't be any other option other than Christ. So wait, what do you mean? Well, first of all, the only way to have sin forgiven against an infinitely holy God is to have one who is infinite pay the penalty for us. So our sin is an infinite offense because God's holiness is infinite. It knows no boundaries. That's why hell is forever. When you go to hell, it never ends because you'll always be paying the infinite debt you owe against an infinitely holy God. And so if we're going to be saved, we need someone who is infinite himself to pay the penalty for us. So the one who would come and be our substitute has to be God, right? Next, we also need a human to die in our place to satisfy the justice of God. God is just, and, and for humans to be forgiven, a human, a man, must die in our place. That's what the Bible teaches. We need someone who is not only infinite and, and, and divine, we need someone who is human like us, who has taken on flesh like we have. And here it goes, you ready? 
There is only one, listen, who is fully God and fully human that died for us. Romans 5.8 says God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's only one who is fully God and fully human that died for us. So Jesus is the only one who meets the requirements to be a savior. Now think about all the other world religions. Think about human history. Who else in human history can claim to be fully God and fully man, able to die for the sins of the world? No one. No one. No one can do what is required to save us other than Christ. Therefore, here it is, Jesus is the only way to be saved. When you look at the entire Bible and our need and what is required to save us, it is so clear that Jesus is the only way. John MacArthur writes this to the church as we live in a, an increasingly pluralistic world. Now is not the time to make friends with the world. It is certainly no time to capitulate to world cries for pluralism and inclusivism. Unless we recover our conviction that Christ is the only way to heaven, the evangelical movement will become increasingly weak and irrelevant. In other words, if we don't stand for this truth in God's word, that Jesus Christ is the only way, the church will become irrelevant, impacting no one. Because the only way someone's life is going to be changed for time and for eternity is through Jesus. And we are not doing our culture any favors backing away from the exclusivity of Christ. They need to hear the truth. And the most loving thing we can do is share the truth. And I say that because a lot of people say, well, that's very unloving of you to speak of the exclusivity of Christ. No. If there is only one way to heaven, the most loving thing we can do is share that truth with a lost and dying world. Let me illustrate. Let's just say that there was a a road that came to a fork. One of the roads led to a river and the bridge was washed out. If you went down that road, you would certainly plunge into the river and die. The The other part of the fork went to a bridge that was intact and would get you across the river safely. And let's just say that I was standing there at that fork and I knew which road was which. And you come to the fork in the road. Would it be rude of me to say, there's only one way that's safe. There's only one way that gets you across safely. Would that be rude of me or would that be loving of me? Should I say, well, you know, here's what I believe, but whatever you believe, if, it works, if this road works for you, go, go ahead. Go down this road that leads to a washed out bridge. That wouldn't be loving. That would be cruel, would it not? And so the church needs to stand at the intersection of time and eternity and say, there's only one way. And Christians are known in the book of Acts, and we are still today followers of the way. That's what the Bible teaches. And so the first title is disciples. The second is followers of the way. The third title is the word saints. I love this. Saints. Look what it says over in Acts chapter 9 verse 13. Acts chapter 9 verse 13. It says, Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. So Ananias calls Christians in Jerusalem saints. And then Look with me in verse 32 of Acts chapter 9. 
Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And then look in verse 41. Speaking of Peter being used by God to see Tabitha raised from the dead, it says in verse 41, He gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. So three times throughout this chapter, Christians, followers of Christ, are called what? Saints. Now, let me explain to you this phrase because there's a lot of misunderstanding around the idea of saints. The, the word saint comes from the same word that we translate holy or set apart or sanctified. And the word saint it means that someone has been set apart as God's own possession. So when we place our faith in Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we are set apart in a special way to be God's. He takes us as his possession. We are saints. We are set apart for a relationship with him. That's what the word saints means. Ones who are set apart. And and here's what you need to understand. Every Christian is a saint. Every Christian is a saint. You say, wait, can you prove that to me? Well, look over in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1 with me. You see how he addresses the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Paul says, I'm writing to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. The idea of being set apart. Then he says, called to be saints. He uses the noun form here. Called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So he said the folks here in Corinth that have called upon the name of the Lord, they're saints, and they're saints along with everyone else that has called upon the name of the Lord. So what do we learn from that? Listen, if you have called upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says you are a saint. You say, wait, I don't feel like a saint. Well, listen to me. Sainthood is not given to you because you're good. It's given to you because he's good. It's an act of grace whereby when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he graciously, mercifully sets you apart and makes you his own. It's an amazing word. Every Christian is a saint. And so think about it like this. This title refers to our position in Christ, not our achievements. Our position What God does for us, not what we have earned or acquired. But, listen, this position, this reality should motivate our practice. Even though God has made us saints, we don't make ourselves saints, now that we are saints, that's our position in Christ, now that we are God's own possession, we ought to be motivated to start to live like it, right? We ought to want to show people The difference that Jesus makes in our life. So while you cannot earn sainthood, you can, by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, begin to live up to sainthood and show people that you're God's possession now and He is changing you. And so, in a manner of speaking, we want our our practice to come into greater conformity with our position in Christ. We are called saints. Every Christian is a saint. Now, the reason why there's so much misunderstanding is because of what we see, for example, in the Catholic Church. I saw this past April, they named two popes. 
saints. And I, I read a little bit about that, and it was interesting. They had all these criteria to be a saint, to be named a saint. You had to fulfill all these different things, and they did interviews with folks and did research and wrote these long, lengthy papers about achievements and about the level of holiness of a person and miracles that were, were done at their hands. And, 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 and if you fit all these different criteria, they would, they would bestow upon you the honor of sainthood. Let me tell you a much easier way to be a saint. Let me tell you the biblical way to be a saint. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. He'll make you a saint. Amen? He'll make you a saint. And so this is a, a term used. By the way, it's the, most, it's the term most often used in the epistles for Christians. Saints. Ones who are set apart by God. But there's a fourth phrase I want you to see. And when I studied this this past week, it really convicted me. Look back with me in Acts chapter 9. I want to show you another phrase applied to Christians in Acts chapter 9. Look what it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 14. This is Ananias talking to the Lord when the Lord said, Go and lay your hands on, on Saul. And Ananias said, Hey, don't you remember who Saul is? He's a terrorist. He's, he's dragging people out of their home and arresting them. He's an enemy of the cross. Look what he says in verse 14. Here, Damascus, here, he has authority from the chief priests to bind all, watch this phrase, who call on your name. Isn't that interesting? He calls Christians those who call on the name of God. And then look in verse 21. This is not a one-time thing. Look what it says in verse 21. This is when Saul begins proclaiming Christ in the synagogues. It says in verse 21, All who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? So twice in this chapter, Christians are described as those who call upon the name. Isn't that interesting? Followers of Christ have a relationship with God. And I know you've heard that before, but just let that sink in for a moment. How amazing it is that we who are fallen and sinful and depraved and wicked in Christ have had our sins forgiven and we have been reconciled to a holy God. And now the Bible says we are adopted whereby we can call God Father. When we meet Christ, we enter into a relationship with God. Isn't that amazing? Have you lost your amazement of the fact that you have a relationship with God now? And a key part of that relationship with God, a vital part of that relationship is prayer. How do you have a relationship without talking, right? You've heard me share this before, but let's just say that I began to treat Claire in my marriage the way a lot of us treat God. What if I said to Claire, hey Claire, I love you, you're great, you're wonderful, thank you for marrying me, and and here's the deal, I'm going to come to you every Sunday morning, and I'm going to sing a song about how great you are, and I'm going to tell you how much I love you, but then I'm going to ignore you Monday through Saturday. But next Sunday I'll be back, and I'll, I'll tell you how much I love you, I'll even sing a song, you're great, you're awesome, oh how I love Claire right? But then I'll ignore you Monday through Saturday. That's how a lot of people treat God, don't they? We come to church. Oh, how I love Jesus. God, you're awesome. You're wonderful. It's good to know you. Yeah, awesome. We walk out of the doors of the church and don't talk to him again the entire week. 
Now question, if that characterizes your practice, are you going to have a close, vibrant relationship with God? No. In order for you and for me to have a growing, intimate relationship with God, we've got to talk to Him. And the avenue that God gives us, the privilege God gives us to talk to Him, is called prayer, right? And so if we spend time with God in prayer, we will grow closer to Him. And listen to this. Prayer should be a key characteristic of the Christian life. Now, look back with me in verse 14. This is so powerful. It says, He has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. That, that participle, all who call on your name, is a present tense participle. In other words, it means they call on your name continuously. Every day, every day, they're calling on your name. Every day, they're praying. Their lives are characterized by prayer. That's why they apply this phrase to them, those who call upon the name. Now, let me ask you a convicting question. I had to wrestle with this this past week. I really did. If someone gets up close and personal with you and, and examines your life, They walk around with you for a few days. Would they walk away saying, that's a person who calls on the name. That's a person whose life is marked by prayer. Would they say that about you? Could they apply the same phrase, those who call on the name, to your life? I had to chew on that this past week. What if, Prayer was such a vital part of our lives and our families and our church that when people were around us, they walked away saying, hey, those folks call on the name. Those folks pray. They're not perfect. They don't have it all figured out. But man, they call on the name. What if they said that about us? Because prayer was such a key component, a vital component in our lives. I did a little reading about David Livingston, great missionary to Africa in the 1800s. And he was known as a man of of prayer. And on May 1st, 1873, early in the morning, one of the young men attending him and helping him walked into his tent in Africa, and David Livingston was on his knees, facing his hands on the pillow, dead. He actually died on his knees. That's how vital prayer was to him. How vital is prayer to you? May God so move in my life and in your life and in our church that prayer becomes not just something we do, it becomes who we are and people walk away saying, those folks call on the name. Those folks love to pray. Those folks can't do anything without prayer. But there's a final title I want you to see as we think about what's in a name. 
We've seen in Acts 9 how Christians were called disciples and those belonging to the way and saints and those that call on God's name. But fifth and last, I want you to see that the term brethren is used. Brethren. Look what it says back in Acts 9, verse 17. It says, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, and this is powerful, all right? Remember, Saul had left Jerusalem, headed to Damascus to arrest Christians, drag them out of their homes, take them back and throw them in jail. He was the one that held the garments while the religious leaders stoned Stephen. He was in full approval of Stephen's execution. He was an enemy of the cross. But look what Ananias calls him the first time he meets him. Look what it says. Walks in the house, laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Isn't that awesome? Brother Saul. By that phrase, brother, Ananias is communicating to Saul, you are now a part of the family of God. You were my enemy. You were coming to arrest me and people like me. But now, because of Christ, because of what he's done, you are my brother. We're in the family of God. Now, can I just tell you this about the family of God? How Christ takes people who are sinners and saves them and brings them into that family. The family of God has the capability of destroying barriers. As we look at our society, everywhere we look, we see barriers, don't we? Racial barriers, socioeconomic barriers. We see all kinds of barriers, national barriers. Barriers that separate people, divide people. But you know what Jesus does? Jesus saves people and brings them together. He brings them into the same family. As a matter of fact, hold your place. Turn to Ephesians very quickly. Ephesians chapter 2. I want to show you this powerful passage of Scripture. Ephesians 2 verse 13. Ephesians 2 verse 13. The Bible says, But now in Christ Jesus, which is a way of saying you're saved, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's talking to Gentiles here. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, Jews and Gentiles, and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, I love this, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. At one time, you were far from God, but now through Christ you've been brought near to God and you are part of the same household of faith. God saving Jews, God saving Gentiles, and bringing them into the same family. You know what destroys barriers that separate people? The gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And we look around at what's happening in our nation right now and all of the racial strife and what's happening in our land. The answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. People meeting Christ as their Lord and Savior, being saved and transformed and then brought into that same family. And so it's highly instructive, is it not, that Ananias walks in the room and says, Brother Saul. He calls him brother. Same thing happens over in Acts chapter 9, verse 30. Look there very quickly with me. Acts chapter 9, verse 30. Not a one-time thing. She's all throughout the Bible. Acts chapter 9, verse 30. The Bible says, When the brothers learned this, learned they were going to try to get Saul. When the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So it calls them brothers. When I baptized these three young ladies this morning, I said, I baptize you, my sister. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not sister by blood, but sister by faith. Part of the same family. So what does that mean? It means if you're a Christian, you're part of the family of God. The family of God is a place where anyone can belong. Doesn't matter how ostracized you are by others. Doesn't matter how lonely you are, how neglected you are. Doesn't matter what you've gone through in your past. If you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you now are a part of the family of God. Now you have brothers and sisters in this room and brothers and sisters all over the world who have embraced Jesus Christ. You know, if we're a family, we ought to act like it, right? We ought to love each other. It doesn't mean we're never going to see things differently. It doesn't mean we don't ever have differences of, of views, but it does mean we're family. And we're in it for the long haul, right? It's interesting, when we first got married, my wife would share something with me about her family that frustrated her. And she would be sharing, you know, with, you know what frustrated her about her family and and I would just agree. I would just kind of chime in and say, yeah, I see what you're saying there. And she'd say, don't talk about my family. <laughs> I was just agreeing with her. Don't talk about my family. That's how we are about our earthly families, right? What about our Christian family? What if we had the same love for each other that we have for our, our biological families? What if we defended each other like that, loved each other like that? I bet it would make an impact in this world. As people saw that bond in the body of Christ. And so, here's the point of all of this. And this is why I didn't want to leave this passage behind. I want to just kind of point out these different titles. Disciple, followers of the way, saints, those that call on God's name, brethren. I think they're highly instructive. And here's the point. Here's why it's important for us in this room this morning. Understanding who we are in Christ will motivate us to live for Christ. I think if you understand these things, then God will give you the wherewithal and the desire and the passion and the information you need to live like it. Understanding who we are in Christ will motivate us to live for Christ. One day... Prince George and Princess Charlotte will understand who they are. Part of the royal family. Question, do you understand who you are in Christ?